hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Seen on Radio, the audio doc podcast from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies. I'm John Bewin. It's episode 24, also the fourth and last installment in our series growing out of the Storymakers Project. Another reason that the union stuff here at Duke was so resonant for me was that in the arts, it's the same way, right? You're not supposed to need the money. This time out, four shortish pieces conceived and made by citizen storytellers, exploring some of the things that drive people apart and pull us together out there in the big society and here in the little city where I live. In New York, I was like other refugees with me. So I was like alone without my family, but there's people with me. But in North Carolina, I'm alone. There is no one with me. So I was like crying there. Storymakers Durham is part of the National Finding America initiative. At the same time, it's a local collaboration led by myself and CDS, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, and Spirit House, an arts and organizing group led by black women here in Durham. Later in the episode, a story from the leader of Spirit House, Nia Wilson. She brings a rarely heard perspective on that explosive Duke lacrosse scandal of a decade ago. Um, people were getting this story in 30-second sound bites, but those of us who lived here, we were completely inundated and consumed by it. And everyone everywhere had a different opinion. And usually they But first, this piece about inviting people in and feeding them. Vimala Rajendran grew up in India. She came to the Triangle in the 1980s following her then-husband. After her marriage dissolved and she became a struggling single mother, she started to cook for people. In her home at first, then at the eatery she founded, Vimala's Curry Blossom Cafe. Um, Vimala's Curry Blossom Cafe is tucked away in a corner um, in downtown Chapel Hill off of Franklin Street with um, inadequate parking and zero visibility. Despite those hindrances, Vimala and her family and their team have built a successful business. When she joined Storymakers, Vimala decided to record a piece about something that means a lot to her. Her restaurant and its unusual everybody eats policy. It means what it says. You can get a meal at Vimala's regardless of your ability to pay. It's a Thursday morning and we will be open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, at this early hour in the morning, there's a lot of prep going on. Paper goods are being stocked. The plating station is being prepped and stocked. And here we have Peter preparing breakfast for staff. Yeah, on the stove, since we cook our curries in uh, rotation, every two to three days, we make two or three curries and we have so many on the menu. Hey, Ian. Um, I wonder often what my staff think when they see the everybody eats people come in the door. 
when I first heard about the plan, I thought it was uh, great because I've been in the industry for about food service industry for like 20 years, and this is probably the first time I've really ever heard of something like that. Had something that I could give back to the community, and I thought, what an amazing idea. Um, essentially, they know to just go to the register wherever it is, or one of us will direct them to wherever they need to go, and they essentially just, I hear there's a plan where I can get something to eat. Sometimes they try to explain themselves, and it's like, no, 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 that's fine. Just all you have to do is go over there, tell them what you want. We print a ticket, and just so we know what to bring you, and that's it. They sit down, we meet them, uh, drop off, and that's it. On a busy day, probably about 10 people. On, a, on an average day, maybe three or four. My name is Alat Jatan. Um, what I like a lot about the program, though, is that it is discreet. We don't have banners waving out in front of the restaurant saying, you know, eat here for free. It's not that kind of a program, not that kind of a, I guess that's not really the mission. Um, and then what also helps is no one has to feel embarrassed or ask. You know, we give table number and service just like anybody else. There's no capital gain in giving away food, and actually we don't give it away. <laughs> the community donates, and I think there's probably chatter in the restaurant about how you know some folks do take advantage of it, yeah. but um, that's kind of the point, is we're not here really to judge. We're here to offer what we, what we can give. Say Robert, first of all, say your name and last name. Yeah. yeah, I'm Robert Williams. Uh, I came here from Asheville, and uh, whenever I got here 16 months ago, uh, Jesus set me free from crack cocaine. Uh, my name is Mark Terrell. I live in a tent out there uh, by the Red Roof. I've been homeless for almost two years now. Occasionally, I can go by your restaurant and eat some of that great food for nothing. I've done that about three times. So I thank you. I thank you. I'd say about a half a dozen, maybe a dozen times. Sometimes I have money, sometimes I don't, and I've always been accepted. I just tell them um, I don't have any any uh, money, and uh, can you help me out with something to eat? You know, rice, just plain old rice. Mm -hmm. You know, and they gave me more than that. It had spices on it, everything was great. It's a blessing. Excellent. What you do each and every day. Because you never forgot where you came from. That's right. You know, I have been homeless in this city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when she said, you know, that she stayed in the shelter also. It started from scratch. I want you to know that um, your experience and your feelings about it and your desire to come back mm -hmm. is, is something that gives me strength you know, keep, to keep doing what I'm doing. Vimala Rajendran. From the start of the Storymakers Project, I've said that Durham is a good place to find America, or you could say to find the USA of the relatively near future. See, in Durham, everybody's a minority. The city's got about equal parts black and white folk, each about 40% of the population. We're 13% Latino, 5% Asian, with immigrants and refugees from almost everywhere. Chip and Teddy Denton are a father-son storymakers team. 
As headmaster of Trinity, a private Christian school in southwest Durham, Chip hosted one of our story circles last winter. In that circle, he told a story about, well, about driving while white. Which is to say, things went just fine. He didn't even get the speeding ticket he deserved. And he said, all right, I'm giving you a warning. And I'm thinking, how in the world did I rate this? You know, uh, how many people, you know, something so much worse would have happened to them. Chip then allowed himself to be recruited into the project as a story maker. But being very busy, he enlisted his son, Teddy, to help him produce a radio piece. Here it is. In ninth grade, um, my history teacher gave me a book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Ann Fadiman. I remember that the story is about a Hmong family in the U.S. and their um, experience with a child with, you know, an intense medical needs and the intersection between their culture and the U.S. medical system. And Anne Fadiman talks about loving boundaries. She says she's always loved the intersection of things like international borders and, and that she thinks that standing at the intersection, you can see both sides more clearly than you can at the center of either one. This is Jenny Bodner, my daughter. And my sister. Jenny now works at World Relief, resettling refugees from all over the world. When John Bewin approached us about the Storymakers Project, exploring the things that divide us and bring us together in Durham, we thought of the refugees that Jenny and her co-workers meet every day in Durham. In particular, we thought of a young Iraqi refugee and friend of Jenny's, Sama. My name is Sama Al-Mafrachi, and I'm from Iraq. I moved with my family to Jordan in 2004 to run away from the situation there in Iraq and the war and everything, there is no freedom to talk. You can't talk anything about anyone in the government because that's like wrong. And someone from my family, your family can be killed if you talk anything. In 2004, when Jenny was 15 and Sama was 14, Sama's family fled Iraq and lived in Amman, Jordan. The move disrupted Sama's schooling, but that was just the beginning of their troubles was hard to us to continue our school without our papers from our old school in Iraq. So my, my dad was there and he was kidnapped. And he was like in the taxi. So there is like um, a fake uh, policeman there, there. Like, what's your name? We need your ID. And they, so they kidnapped him with the taxi driver. And they was like, they, we don't know anything about him for like four months, nothing. After months of being a hostage, Sama's father was released and returned to his family. In 2006, we applied our refugee status because we wanted to get a good life, and we wait. So a refugee has to go through a screening process. Usually they're interviewed by the UN, sometimes by the U.S. Embassy, and they give that whole story to prove their claim as a refugee. And that's not something that's passed to the agencies. Sometimes we'll get some broad category, but often we don't really know why they're coming. Over the next five years, from 2006 to 2011, Sama was in Jordan, going to school and waiting to hear if her application for refugee status would be approved. Seven years after fleeing Iraq, Sama received her papers to come to the U.S. as a refugee. My flight was from Jordan to New York and from New York to North Carolina. 
Uh, so I arrived to New York. I spent the night at the hotel with other refugees. And there was someone from the UN help us and told us, this is the name of the agencies that you are going to. And this is the number if someone not like finding you in the airport there in North Carolina. So I went to North Carolina and I asked them, I was crying there because it's like in North, in, in New York, there was like other refugees with me. So I was like, Alone without my family, but there's people with me. But in North Carolina, like, I'm alone. There is no one with me. So I was like, crying there, help, like asking God like, for help to send me anyone to help me. So we meet someone, we go to the airport often at night, and we're picking someone up. It's usually the first flight they've ever had in their life. Um, and they've often been traveling for days. And sometimes we work in coordination with, if there are family and friends here, then we'll work with them. Um, if not, we're looking for, help, you know, people in the local community who want to be a part of the family's resettlement. Downstairs, I found Daniel. He was my caseworker. I was like a couple like families from like a, a church. They are volunteers. They bring me like food and roses about, oh, like you're welcome. And there's like a back sign says, like, welcome to us. Jenny and Sama met when Jenny came to work at World Relief where Sama was an interpreter. Sama is who I always point people to. She's become a really good friend of mine, as you guys know. Sama was married this past spring to a young man she met in Jordan, and she's moved with him to Boston. Jenny attended her wedding reception at the Durham Armory. Borders are where we learn to stay away from one another and to keep to our own. But borders are also the place where our story can intersect with someone else's, if we let that happen. And Durham is a place where that happens, where we see once again that people are just people. I'm almost here like five years and I met like refugees every day through like my job and through like my friends and everyone. It depends on the person. It not depends on the country because any place, even in your country, even in any place you can find like hard things. The school will be hard. The job will be hard. People, there's like rude people and there's a good people with you and bad people and good people. Nice people and mean people and grateful people and ungrateful people and every kind of person. And that's refugees, you know, there's no stereotype. I just keep coming back to that quote again and again in my life and especially in this work. And I love the intersection of things. I love that kind of tension when you watch things collide and I think you know, really interesting things happen and you come out knowing yourself and the other thing better than you did before. Jenny Bodner, that piece produced by Teddy and Chip Denton. Next, a piece by storymaker Courtney Reed Eaton. She wanted to look at questions of privilege and exploitation and collective action in a setting where those matters are not often discussed, but are nonetheless real. The Academy. Courtney interviewed M.J. Sharp. M.J. had one career as a photojournalist, working for 10 years for publications like Durham's Independent Weekly and The New York Times. M.J. tried through her work to amplify voices and create access for people on the margins of society. A few years ago, M.J. decided to shake off deadlines and pursue a different path, concentrating on her artistic photo practice and sharing her love of photography through teaching. 
recently, MJ again found herself working with others to pursue what she saw as justice and fairness. She was a leader of the successful drive to organize non-tenure-track faculty at Duke University under the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU. When I started seeing the way labor works at universities, which started pretty much right after I graduated from grad school and was offered a class for $5,000 and said, what? (laughs) Something I hadn't bothered to investigate before I went to get an MFA. And I sort of thought, what's up with that? Like, that's an honorarium? That's, are we all landed gentry now? What's going on there? But it's, it really is like, because everyone buys in because they don't know how to fix it. Another reason that the union stuff here at Duke was so resonant for me was that in the arts, it's the same way, right? You're not supposed to need the money. And it's supposed to be a calling, and you're not supposed to talk about how you keep body and soul together, because it's a calling. That's why I'm here, (laughs) because I do feel it's a calling. Um, but the mechanisms by which the calling is uh, corralled, those can change and be better for everyone. Because there's nobody who has less of a voice at a university than an adjunct. Actually, your purpose is to be just-in-time gig disposable labor. Part of what your compensation is, is feeling important that you teach at this elite university, right? So... When you give that up and say, oh, well, actually, I do something really important. I think I do it really well, but I'm disposable. It's a certain kind of coming out that once you do it, you're, you know, you're kind of tossing away one of your big compensations, which is to say, I teach at this university, right? And the way universities are set up is, you know, you people like you, and then, you know, maybe if a full-time thing comes along, you'll get pulled into the full-time thing, but only if you're a team player and they already like you. So it's just set up to exploit people perfectly. You know, just get highly trained people, put them in a situation where talk of money is gauche, and everyone needs to pretend that it's all okay, kind of shabby chic, you know, and then in order to get a better situation than that, you kind of need to not make waves about what your current situation is. So it's like a genius way to have this giant, really qualified, docile, deferential, disposable workforce. And of course, that also has huge implications for any kind of economic diversity, I mean, do you really want people teaching only who have some access to some kind of stability where they're never scared? Part of why I've been so vocal is because I do feel as though it's my responsibility to be that vocal. Because it's not what it seems. The the party line of like, isn't it great that we're all entrepreneurial here and, you know, you just can invent yourself here. And there are ways that that certainly can happen. But one of those ways is not with 40% of the faculty feeling like they're disposable. MJ Sharp in that piece produced by Courtney Reed Eaton. Full disclosure, both Courtney and MJ are colleagues of mine here at the Center for Documentary Studies. 
Next up, Nia Wilson. Mama Nia, I should say. Our last story, the last in the Storymakers series, at least as presented here on the podcast, was told live on stage. We held a public event in Durham recently for an overflow crowd at the Motorco Music Hall. Nia Wilson is the head of Spirit House, the arts and organizing group in Durham that was a key partner in the Storymakers project. It was Nia and Spirit House that suggested we start our process with story circles, for example. The story Nia read at Motorco was taken from a TEDx talk she'd just given in Durham on her ideas about the meaning of safety and how to achieve it. Nia told about her experience of a Durham story that most people know something about, or think they do. The story was very much in the news, just not like this. So exactly 10 years ago, Durham found herself in the middle of um, an international scandal. Um, a young black woman who was working as a dancer accused three Duke lacrosse players of sexual assault. The stories about sexual assault are really difficult for me as I am a survivor. So they produce anxiety. Um, they make me, make my body freeze, make it difficult to breathe. And um, I begin looking for a place where I can hide until whatever the controversy is in that moment is over. And this type of response is called post-traumatic stress, as some of you may know, and anyone who has ever experienced any type of trauma understands what that's like. And so for a time here in Durham, there were many black women and survivors of sexual assault and students at both Duke and NCCU who were experiencing um, disorientation, feeling unsafe, and feeling powerless. The media was everywhere here. Um, people were getting this story in 30-second sound bites, but those of us who lived here, we were completely inundated and consumed by it. And everyone everywhere had a different opinion. And usually they fell across race, class, and gendered lines. And, then, and some of us here who had had the courage to even speak up were actually receiving death threats at the time um, for speaking up about sexual assault and harm and violence. And yet, those same group of us were able to find safety in the midst of all of that. And we called ourselves Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a Zulu term, which means a person is a person through other persons. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu describes Ubuntu as the essence of being human. He says, it speaks of the fact that my humanity is caught up and inextricably bound in yours. So for us, making these deep connections and being bound together was pretty difficult. We had been used to being isolated, people who had been receiving negative messages for a lot of our life, messages like black women, particularly poor black women, were undesirable, therefore unrapeable, and unworthy of any kind of safety. So, you know, we realized that the first thing that we had to do was to believe that we deserved safety and to challenge all those negative messages. So instead of buying locks for our doors, we got about the business of creating a world where we were so inherently valuable to each other that none of us could be thrown away. <clears throat> And so we did that by, we gathered on porches, at kitchen tables, we ate together, we laughed together, we cried together, 
We danced together, we wrote love notes to each other, and we did it all unapologetically, in public, and out loud. We had something called a day of truth-telling where we got together, um, a group of us survivors, women of color, and our allies and supporters, and we marched. We paraded, we didn't march, we paraded in beautiful, brilliant colors with all kinds of images and signs and adinkra symbols from Duke to NCCU because we wanted to make sure that everyone who was affected by what was happening was included in the fact, of, the fact that we wanted to be together and that we wanted a world where we could all be safe and love one another. And the Ubuntu family has stayed together for 10 years. We've had ups and downs, but we've supported each other, we've loved one another, and we continue to care for each other and exist today. And I'm just really grateful to be someone who was a part of that magic that happened here in Durham. Ms. Nia Wilson. Before we go, I want to finish a thought that I started in the last episode when I said Americans have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions, above all the connected chasms of race and class. What will it take to heal them? For starters, we need to stop inflicting new wounds, right? We've got to address the profound injustices and inequalities that separate us. And it would seem we need to work towards some semblance of agreement on how we got here, a shared understanding of our national story. You only have to listen to the rhetoric in this alarming election year to know Americans are far, far from any such consensus. So, well, we do what we can in our little ways to create space for people to tell the stories they know and to take time to hear one another. The Storymakers Project is brought to you by North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR, the Association of Independents in Radio, with financial support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. More about our project at storymakersdurham.org. Music in this episode by Lucas Bewin and Blue Dot Sessions. With this episode, we're calling it a season. Gonna take a hiatus to catch our breath and make some new work. I'm very excited about our plans for season two, which will kick off in the fall. So there's time to catch up on any episodes you haven't gotten to. I'm grateful for any sharing or spreading of the word. It's a thicket of worthy shows out there, so if you like this one, please let somebody know. Subscribe to Scene on Radio if you haven't. And while you're at it, give us a rating or review on iTunes. That's a powerful way to help others find us too. Follow me on Twitter at Scene on Radio. Like us on Facebook. The show comes from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. <laughs>